0: Hello, Dennis. Hello, Jesse. Hello, Boy, that was mildly creepy. Hello, Clarice. <laughs> hey, uh, we're going to the Focus Conference coming up in January. Yes, we are. And we're going to do a live podcast. From Indianapolis, Indiana. From Indianapolis, Indiana. We're going to have a booth there, too. So come visit us at the booth. Uh, come say hi. Come to our live uh, podcast. Sign
1: up to be a student at the Liturgical Institute.
0: Yeah, all of the below. And also this week, we continue talking about Sacrosanto Cochilium, which is great. It is like a gold mine that never ends. It,
1: Diamonds, rubies,
0: emeralds, amethysts, okay it. topazes, chrysophrase. chrysophrase. Chrysophrase? That's like when, whenever Chris says something? Nope,
1: that's one of the gems from the book of Revelation Ooh. that heaven is made of.
0: There are still things I don't know. So without further ado, episode 13 of season 3 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. We're hearing right now is the Literature Guys pre show <coughs> where Dennis and Chris discuss all the things that we may or may not mm-hmm. say. On Mostly the I'm looking at my
1: phone. And Chris is doing all the work. Chris. Chris gets none of the credit and does all the work. <laughs> yeah, he, he really Chris, does, does all a the pseudodidact. work. I'm a pseudo Dionysius. <laughs> what? I don't know that that's what he said. Well, I'm a pseudo didact, yes. Mr. Dr. David that like pseudo called me an autodidact. What is that? I don't know. Would you be uh, flattered if someone called you an autodidact?
0: I would be offended, no matter what. It You're meant. such an autodidact.
1: I'm never Jesse. offended by anything.
0: I'm always offended. I'm offended by that. That I've, thought of yours. I've found. I have too offended. I've <laughs> found ways
1: to offend Jesse, Jesse over the years. An autodidact, didact, means what, Chris? Uh, teaching didactic. Or, yeah, it's from okay. didaskyne, the Greek infinitive to. That
2: was my teach.
1: Self teach. This is, I guess, where didactic comes from. The teachings of the Christians. It's an... Ancient document. Teaching um, by itself. Tradition. Teaching itself. So if you go and read a fun, bunch of books about how to do stuff and you teach yourself how to do something, you're an autodidact.
0: Hmm. Hmm. That's a good thing.
1: Yeah. All right. It's like your autograph is your self-writing. Autodidact. Is I thought yourself.
0: that was a chirograph.
1: That's a chi- by, written by his own hand, but an autograph is also the same. Something you write yourself.
2: Well. So what does it mean that these uh, that we're to talk about now are norms based on the didactic Nature. and pastoral
1: nature. We're at 33 in Sacrosancta oh, yeah. so, Cotillium. A yeah, continuing, so we, stimulating,
0: scintillating discussion. Again, uh, the disclaimer, Chris is really not feeling this episode here. <laughs> so, uh, Come on, we haven't even been two minutes into it. Send, send him an He's email. Like, Vatican two. Questions at liturgyguys.com. Uh, Be like, Chris, shut up what is your problem this has been extremely an amazing right. series of so podcasts have had a good run here
1: if you haven't been able to sleep at night listening to these podcasts because <laughs> of the excitement <laughs> oh, of this send an email to liturgy guy what's that it?
0: questions question, question liturgy dot com. yeah that one liturgyguys.com <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm drunk on cheese <laughs> send so. money to patreon.com slash liturgy that too with a message to Chris okay so what are you saying there what does it mean to be didactic
1: so the liturgy teaches, yes, but is that all it does? Is that the primary mission of the liturgy that you go? I would there say that is not. Learn a bunch of stuff about stuff. It's, it's, I'd agree with Jesse. It's on this. tertiary for sure. What is the sacred liturgy above all things, as number thirty-three says, Chris?
2: The worship of the divine majesty. Very important. Uh, right? My
1: words exactly. Divine majesty.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, do we talk that way anymore? I do. The <laughs> that's collect, how
1: how I address Jesse in the morning. I come in, I'm like, "Hello,
2: hey your your Divine divi- your majesty. majesty." The collect from the last Sunday's mass was, uh, "Almighty Ever Living God, helps to conform our will to Yours and serve Your Divine Majesty
1: mm-hmm. in sincerity of heart." Majestatis in Latin, right? You mean the collect like, eight,
0: oh, I, I mean, eight uh, weeks uh, ago, some, some <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah. So to serve the Divine Majesty, that's uh, you know. What's the word, egalitarian and and whatnot, so we don't speak of each other having majesty and whatnot, but uh, God's not like
1: each of us. But it's related to the word uh, major, actually. Oh, yeah. Mayor, my majesty. So we worship God's greatness as God, his divine majesty. Greatestness. His God's (laughs) bestest. He's our bestie, but in the divine sense. So that's the number one thing that liturgy is about. However. However, it also contains so number thirty three instruction, instruction for the faithful. Much
2: instruction for the faithful. So by way of scripture and by way well, of that's just it. So homily, you have, do you have teaching masses? Do you have catechists? Do you have commentators? Do you have, how is it that they're taught? The paragraph continues, for in the liturgy, God speaks to his people, and Christ is still proclaiming his gospel, and the people reply to God by both song and prayer. So the principle Didact, if that's the way to put it, is uh, not necessarily the priest. It's God Himself speaking to and forming His people
1: through the priest and through the signs and symbols of the liturgy. And sometimes that's with words, right? So you have the Andrew fun, he who ponders the law of the law Lord day and night will yield fruit in due season. Oh, so maybe I should be pondering the law all the time so that I can oh. yield fruit. Okay. When is due season? Well, right. And what does it mean to <laughs> yield fruit? You so and I have
0: different thoughts when we hear those
1: words. <laughs> so there's you know, stuff there. But then if you're in a big church and it's hushed and suddenly everything begins and you hear this Gregorian chant singing this and you smell incense and, you know, it's like trumpeters up there.
0: You're like,
1: whoa, what's going on? Something important and the priest enters. That is also a way of learning about the majesty of God, because the majestic actions teach you stuff that is not necessarily in the the words alone Dennis were you like a ghostwriter for this paragraph number 33 I wasn't because listen to this well, that was like a word
2: for word it, it, well, it was pretty much it says the visible signs used in the liturgy to signify invisible divine things have been chosen by Christ or the church thus not only when things are read which are written for our instruction but also when the church prays or sings or acts The faith of those taking part is nourished and their minds are raised to God so that they may offer him their rational service and more abundantly receive his graces. So bingo, bell, bell, bell for you. It's not just that there's this, see, because the, I think this is a safe evaluation, following the council, a lot of the reforms of the liturgy became very cognitive, strictly didactic, wordy, very verbose, and... That's right because it's supposed to be didactic, Uh, but the casualty in all of this was that these signs and symbols and silences and everything else in the liturgy was downplayed. But this is clearly not what number 33 is saying. It's not only in words, but all of these other things are meant to be informative to the person.
1: This There's, is the playfulness of the liturgy, right? You walk around in this place of eternal glory and splendor where God is adored and, and uh, His majesty is evident. So, practical decision, right? I have to pick a chasuble. Right, I want this chasuble to be didactic. Well, what does that mean? You write a slogan on the back or you have a bunch of little kids' faces or something. You know, the children of the world chasuble. What's the slogan? Pray it forward? Whatever whatever it is. Um,
2: but well, how no. about this? How about your chasuble says chasuble on it and your <laughs> right. altar says altar and your ambo says ambo and thing. I mean, that's didacticism to, or to if the it extreme.
1: Or this is important, right? No, it doesn't have to say that. Just make the chasuble. Lovely, glorious, embroidered, golden, because whatever there's, so that it's by definition teaching you the importance of you can
0: happening. be You can be didactic through experiential teaching and through an encounter with Christ and through an encounter with this heavenly liturgy and heavenly Jerusalem. And so we, and the big thing right now is everybody's talking about is discipleship and evangelization and, 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 and encountering Christ and everything. But you can do that through the liturgy, you can do that, and that's also didactic.
1: Yeah. But what? if someone loves you, right, that you experience their love of Christ, the love of Christ, they experience the love of Christ in you, that's not, here's a textbook. I'm supposed <laughs> to me love count you the ways. because step one said, <laughs> identify the you know the, the mark. Two, love the mark till they love you back. No, that's not it. It's, I've experienced Christ's love through you, and that is an
0: actual learning process of what it feels like to be loved. And it might be... M- more effective, depending on who you are. Well, right, well, uh, beauty so I don't, that leads that Ah, uh, right? that's
2: exactly where it's going. So, uh, do, you one brain, that, one do you remember that brain. Youth Synod from months ago now?
0: Oh, yeah. And that was I, so long ago. I don't
2: know how long or how closely or not you followed what was coming out of the Youth Synod, but the things that, uh, maybe this says something about the, the types of news I follow and the websites I look at, but there was a lot of stumping by these bishops and uh, groups at the Youth senate, about bringing back tradition and beauty for the youth. Do it. Because beauty is attractive, and it's informative, and it's evangelical, and it's not simply... We need these other things, too. We need sort of um, dogmatic, expository, classroom type of teaching. Mm-hmm. But, and again, I think that's where a lot of... So far as I remember this, after the council, there was a really a tendency to downplay sort of the medium of beauty and the symbolic and the poetic uh, through these signs and symbols and stripping it down to to purely a cognitive sort of. Well, although many people
0: would say, if only we
2: had this kind uh, of like this, this but,
0: pendulum theory, like going from one extreme to the other. So mm-hmm. maybe they thought we're doing so much of this that maybe we don't need to do so much and we I need to be more.
1: A lot of it grew out of the next paragraph. thirty-four. Well, let's find out what that is, which says the rights should be distinguished by a noble simplicity. They should be short, clear and unencumbered by useless repetitions comprehensible and normally not require much explanation okay so
0: first of all we did an entire podcast on noble on rep- simplicity. repetitions so and repetitions right but also noble simplicity so let's Go repeat all this in yeah. a fanciful way so if you hear noble simplicity you think oh well it's
1: got to be kind of low ordinary unimportant, Plain stripped down boring but I know I've said this. I don't know. How knowable. Many, how many times? Knowble, what does knowable mean?
0: Knowable. Knowable. It's a false cognate. To be no, know. it's a real cognate. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's a uh,
1: contraction of the English word knowable, and it comes from the Latin word. Nobilis? Yes. I only know this from you. And so. that comes from the infinitive nocere, which is to know, right? So if something is knowable, that means that it reveals itself. And so a knowable simplicity means it doesn't have anything more than it needs to reveal what it is. So. We're talking, again, about the ontological reality of things. We're talking about the nature of things. And if you goop a lot of stuff on it, right, then you can't see it. Put 15 winter coats on you, Jesse, and maybe we don't know who you are under there.
0: Isn't church architecture supposed to have a noble simplicity? No, it is not. You are the worst person (laughs) who has ever lived. Go put your coats on. I know all of the buttons to press. (laughs) All of them.
1: Yeah, so... Art and architecture, it says we're supposed to have a noble beauty, but we'll talk about that later. But noble simplicity, short, clear, and unencumbered by useless repetitions, meaning don't waste people's time with things that aren't proper to the literacy. What do we do a lot of the time? Trashy complexity instead of noble simplicity. <laughs> this is my, I officially Boy, put that out there. Give it to complexity. me Jen. I want the footnote for trashy complexity, right? Trashy oh, stuff you <laughs> that's not about... The revealing the things of god and complexity we add all kinds of processions that don't exist or we have little kind of made up rituals or the music is kind of crummy and then even though the priest is already at the chair waiting to start we're singing four more verses of the crummy hymn this complexity this extra stuff
0: that that happened be to there. me on sunday did it the priest is waiting until he during the processionals and it's just he's just waiting there for two verses right even though the the entrance chant is
1: supposed to accompany the procession mm-hmm to the altar and so that's that's a condition where you're not actually having noble simplicity you're having a kind of complexity of things that don't belong there and so instead of saying what is the what is the nature of the entrance chant oh it's that music that simulates our mind about the feast or the gospel reading that day and it's supposed to encourage us to ponder that and finish when the priest is at the chair what do we do we fill people's minds full of other stuff in questionable theology and questionable music, and then we keep doing it after the priest is there and make everybody wait. It's kind of like the uh, hymn at the end of Mass. It's not really foreseen by the Missal that there's a song at the end of Mass, I and mean, especially to sing all the hymns, verses after the priest is gone, you know, instead of kneeling or, you know, doing your thankful. That's when all the people should prayer. leave
0: Mass early. After the blessing. Well,
2: there you go. <laughs> well, ite mis est means mass is ended. Yeah. It says the, it, it, mass ends when the priests and ministers have departed. Yeah.
1: So um. short, clear, and unencumbered means say the black, do the red, right? It doesn't mean don't say the black, make up other black, and don't do the red, just because that seems too complicated. So if you do the missile as it is given, then you are by definition avoiding useless repetitions, and you're doing the noble simplicity of the roman rite. i think our liturgical institute masses do a really good job at this because we sing the entrance antiphon and we only sing it as long as it takes for the priest to get to the altar and we sing it in an english chant set by adam bartlett which is quite nice it's the proper text for the day scriptural the scriptural then the whole mass is sung privileging the uh dialogues as all the documents say And there's no fussy anything. It's unaccompanied by instruments, just because we don't have those available in the daily Mass. And the vestments are nice. The altar is nice. The chalice is nice. The Preaching is usually good. And (laughs) totally, there's no useless anything. And it's quite simple. No choir, no no More Or no
2: less than is necessary to... Exactly. To sacramentalize what's going on at that day.
1: But when the lector goes up and says, a reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians, they've raised that up to a noble nobility, a knowability of the importance. Hey, I'm about to read the, God, the uh, reading to you. Thanks be to God, right? Whatever it, I got that wrong, but you know what I mean. It's already an invitation in song to, to So on
0: feast days, Dennis, when I'm a lector, Yes. Uh, should we have another person read the first reading? We should,
1: a, ideally, according to Chris so, rule. You
0: should think about that. Yeah. Well, we will. We, will, we shall do that. <clears throat> so
1: there you go. Noble simplicity. Let the reality of the thing shine through. The fulgiant one comes later, doesn't it? That's the noble, no, no. That,
2: that's it. The, uh, the word that they render is distinguished. Uh, Father Martisoy said that sounds to me like extinguished, when in fact the Latin word is fulgiant. Uh, You're the king of fulgiant. Tell us. <laughs> so um, it, it means uh, let them shine. Uh, what do they call the that type of verb? Uh, proposed action. Mm. Um, Dangling participle. Right no, no, that's something oh. else. Yeah, but uh, fulgiant means let them shine or radiate. Uh, I would, like the the Latin verb of that is fulgor, fulgoris. You mean imperative? Which, no, 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 no! Oh. Not, not an imperative. It's not, not a ad- shine right
0: now. You. It's yes. an implied imperative. Let it's it It's an happen. invitation. Let it be proposed action. Yeah. yeah
1: May there. it be
2: so. Uh, but uh, fulgor, fulgoris is the the Latin noun for a flash of lightning. Mm. And so the right should like, flash. like a flash of lightning should radiate this nobility, which has no more or no less than is required to make the substance shine out in all
1: of its radiant splendor which, by the way, is what Jacques Maritain, pulling from Aquinas, says is the eschatological flash of a beautiful thing. So, when a thing has all that it needs to have, nothing more, everything's in the right place, then its its ontological reality shines through, and that's the definition of beauty. It's the encounter with the ontological reality of a thing, as it's understood fully, or as fully as we can, on earth, in the mind of God. So, noble simplicity, noble beauty. Noble beauty is kind, of kind of a redundancy, right? Because noble and beauty are really this kind of the same thing and it shouldn't require much explanation why because it's so obvious there should be this awe and majesty if you know more it's even better but you don't have to say oh now that guy wearing that gray suit not the chasuble not looking like heaven is supposed to be encountering the things of heaven no just let his realities and his signs and symbols make heaven known to you
2: it's a nice line in that uh famous 1964 letter of romano gardini to the German liturgical conference. You know this you, letter, Jesse. You know, yes. the one. you know
0: the one. Of course. We talked about this. And, he's t-
2: we, yeah. uh, and he talks about uh, he went to mass at uh, the Palermo Cathedral and the people who were participating in the uh, offertory procession, he says, they didn't have to look up in a book what it meant. He says, they knew because it symbolized, because the external expression and symbol was so naturally connected to its internal reality that their human nature was able to perceive and understand what the symbolism of the procession was. So it's, yeah, it's not like they had to look it up or it required a lot of explanation but now some things do this is part of uh being formed in the faith as you you know biblical typologies and and other things like that the more you know the bible the better you understand and appreciate how the liturgy symbolizes but this is the type of didacticism that the Mm -hmm. council at least has in mind it's not a catechism class um and even you know in these paragraphs that that follow uh it will talk about here about the sermon and i you know because I don't preach, I'm not quite sure the the, the import of different mm, words preaching
0: like preaching to the choir now, homily
2: no. versus sermon and things like that. But I gather that you know a lot of the sermonizing um, at one time was was especially catechetical or uh, moral and things like that. And obviously, those are good things that um, maybe we have lost along the way. There's moral confusion uh, all across the culture. Uh, but we don't speak of the sermon so much anymore. We speak of homilies that are, um, you know, what, what what makes a homily different from a sermon is it's maybe formative of- And it
1: draws from the reading of that day. That's one of the key things is that it's- Yeah, they're not catechism lessons. Explaining uh, the gospel and mm-hmm. what it's kind of keryg- kerygmatic messages. What's kerygma, Chris?
2: Oh, It's the preaching of the good news, right? It's the, the kerygma is the message that- um, you know it's the plane of the mystery that we hear about it
1: at some readings that, right. the, that so God, 35 number two here says its character of the the homily should be that of proclamation of god's wonderful works of history in history and salvation the mystery of christ ever present and active active within us especially in the celebration of the liturgy right so it's not a place to memorize the commandments or the Beatitudes or whatever, as good as those things are. The yeah, exactly. The is,
2: The point is not to downplay that, Christ no, you know, is the, the council you. wanted to get away with the commandments or, <laughs> <laughs> or teaching or doctrine and things like that. But they're putting a little, uh, it seems, you know, a different emphasis on liturgical preaching is a different type of
1: species than catechism classes. You remember my uh, horror story, homily, my homily horror story? Oh, man, I Which think one? I've heard
0: so many... But go ahead. <laughs> no,
1: this was when I was—I uh, went to a Mass. A parish was quite traditional, in many ways very excellent, but it was the Feast of the Transfiguration. And I was like, wow, Jesus transfigured on Mount Tabor. We can all shine with a divine life and divinization and grace and the Eucharist. And I was ready for that. And it was a 15-minute old-school sermon on the number of ways you could break two of the commandments. I forget which ones they were, three and four, four and six, something like that. And it literally went like this. Continuing our series on the commandments, you could violate the fourth commandment by doing this. So many people in our world today violate the commandment like this, and nobody seems to care. You could also violate this commandment <laughs> by doing... 15, I think they already
0: know how to violate 15, <laughs> 15 minutes <laughs> of
1: that, right? And I want to say... We just heard the gospel what about the gospel what does the transfiguration mean for the mystery of christ evident in our world not a syllable
0: not one syllable. look i'm an, already an expert on sinning it's the glorification part that i need <laughs> practice on i could write that out.
1: no there's nothing wrong with working some help into a homily about scripture and say, because god wants to divinize you you shouldn't violate the commandments because they get in the way of god making you what he wants you to be but if you Talk to old enough people, they would say the old school homilies weren't really, or sermons, weren't always about the scripture, and they weren't about the mystery of God, and they weren't about what was happening in the liturgy. And that's not what it is, apparently.
2: Yeah, this, this would be a good podcast, maybe. <laughs> is uh, A couple years ago, there was a, du- a homiletic directory um, that had been called for, I think, by John Paul II, maybe, and or Pope Benedict XVI, that came out under Pope Francis on, you know, on, on the nature of uh, liturgical preaching. The Somaletic
1: directory. Mm-hmm. Visit. Right. We're yeah. cruising to the end of this chapter here now. Yeah, you better hit number 36. So this is the yeah. big one. Okay. Particular law remaining in force. The use of the Latin language is to be preserved in the Latin rites. What? Ding, 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 bang, I bang, I thought bang, the Second Vatican Council you know, told you to get rid of Latin. Well, Latin is the language of the Latin church. Who th- would have thought? <laughs> Who would right? have thought of, right? Now, it then right away follows. But the use of the mother tongue is... Um, sometimes helpful in the Mass and the administration of the sacraments, uh, um, its employment may be extended. And this will apply in the first place to what? If you were just going to think, if you could only music use the vernacular in a couple of places, where would it go?
0: Oh, the dialogues. Wait. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. What, which parts would be most fruitful
1: for you to hear in oh, the
0: vernacular? Oh, uh, the, the scriptures and the homily. Exactly. Well, sure.
1: The homily was always in the, the native tongue. Um, the scriptures and the prayers and chants, it says. So, the readings and directives and to some of the prayers and chants. So, usually that's described as being the prayers of the faithful. And even prayers and chants. Even prayers and chants. <laughs> so, there you go. So, um, then it says, you know, that they have to decide how to do these translations and they have to be, these decisions have to be approved by the Apostolic See um, and so on. So, there's a little bit of legalese about how you do that after that. But.
2: Yeah. But remember, all of this is under the umbrella, this chapter head is about the didactic and pastoral nature of the liturgy, uh, which comes about through God communicating through the rites to you and you reciprocating and speaking to God through language, through scriptural texts, through the homily, through the language, different prayers and chants, is how is it that you can be formed uh, in the truths of the faith and really your whole person can be formed according to the substance who's uh, Christ the Logos.
1: And later, you know, more and more permissions came out to add more and more vernacular to the Mass. It's not like Vatican II said, only certain places and then everybody did what they wanted. They, there's permission now to do 100% vernacular liturgy. It's not the whole world acting in disobedience to the, the norms mm-hmm. of the Church. Although, I mean, take, take the
2: What's going on in the world today? You hear the Youth Senate, or I've heard a bishop say, you know, just this week, you know, about introducing, and this happened for a few years now, that uh, I'd like to see more parts, the people being able to sing or say more parts in Latin, mm-hmm. like the you know the ordinary of the mass or things like that. So, um, after very quickly abandoning all of the Latin, right? And it's not hard to find people who, who think the Second Vatican Council, you know, uh prescribed that latin should be eliminated you know if, if we use latin parts at uh, in my parish people will say this to me afterwards why are we going back to before the council it, completely skipping what this would have said here
1: and then you suck them in the eye and say no, that's the council
2: baby no and but you know after very quickly abandoning latin almost wholesale now it seems there's desire for more of it to make a return we'll damn get to, right
1: there is we'll get to this in future commentary on Sacrosanctum Concilium. but there's a line in there that says pastors should be sure to make to make sure that people can sing most of the mass parts in Latin that's actually in the council
0: document itself where but we will soon find out that's for next time until then <laughs> Dinium que- est questions for the liturgy guys Chris I hope you're ready. This one's a doozy. So you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute, and we love everything that we do here, but you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it?
2: Well, I've known the Liturgical Institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well, who was the founder. Uh, Dr. McNamara, who was with him from the beginning, I've known. we become good friends, I've spoken many times there, I've known all the faculty members, I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. And they introduce people into the beauty
1: of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic
2: dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan.
0: Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today,
1: we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone?
0: All right, we have a question. Yes. This week, we have a question from Mike, and Mike is a new podcast listener. Oh, thanks, Mike. And his question is, is there a place for modern worship music in the liturgy? Now, before we dive in, he sent us an article that he wrote... um, Uh, It's called the Defense of Modern Worship Music in the Liturgy. You can check that out. But I I assume for this instance, he's talking about possibly praise and worship music or more uh, contemporary music. Is there a place for that in the liturgy?
1: You want me to answer this question? I
0: do. Okay. Well, I have thought about this for a long time. Your whole life.
1: Many, many moons. I was the only kid in... uh, junior high school writing essays for English class about the difference between Gregorian chant and modern sacred music. So I've been thinking about it very long. Wow. Yeah, I I know.
0: Just what I thought you couldn't be even nerdier. Oh, here
1: I am. Yeah. Well, here we go. So modern is a funny word because modern could mean composed yesterday or modern could mean it's taking on the principles of modernity, right? So modernity as a intellectual understanding of things has a couple of characteristics. Um, Bishop Barron wrote an essay about this many years ago and listed some of the characteristics of music. But one of them is a certain scientism, the things only valid if they're scientifically verifiable. One of is anti-traditionalism, so by definition, modern is not old. And there's some other things like that, the, the, the subjective primacy, so my emotions come before my intellect and so on. So if you want to say modern music, you have to say, okay, is it modern music or is it modernist music? It's yes, like modern architecture could be built yesterday, but could be very deeply traditional, or it could be modernist and take a position oh, even, I see. even a, 80 years ago when that's it was good built clarification. that it does not, by definition, continue the, the great tradition. So, modern music and modernist music, two different things. So, there are a number of composers alive today. Kevin Allen is one. There are others at the CC Watershed um, website, Chant Cafe, who are alive today, composing at this very second, probably at their piano somewhere. And it's modern with a small m, but it's not modernist. It sounds like it's continuous with the great tradition. So there is definitely a place for that. So what's different between modern and, and modernist is this question of, cont- you know, timeliness. We're talking about chronology: is it old? Is it new? Is it modern? Is it yesterday? Is it today? None of those are liturgical questions, right? What's the nature of the liturgy? What's the nature of singing in the liturgy? And you know, what comes in handy there is this distinction between liturgical singing and devotional singing. We've talked about that Mm -hmm. uh, before. So there are plenty of people out there in the praise and worship world who do really great devotional songs. And they're really, really good for a Focus Conference or a Steubenville East or a- Adoration. Adoration, 24 hours. Mm -hmm. It nourishes a lot of people's devotional sense of things. And the church has always had devotional music and that's fine. It's excellent it's necessary, in fact. But most devotional music is not liturgical in character. In the strict definition, liturgical music takes the text of- the mass. So the proper antiphons, the Kyrie, the Gloria, the Creed, whatever it happens to be. And those
0: are things that are already written. They exist already.
1: They're in the missal, the the words. And then so Bach could write the B minor mass with the same text as Palestrina 100 years earlier. And then people in the 20th century, Bruckner and Faure and Poulon wrote beautiful, sacred, liturgical music, mass settings, and so on. But you know what might be handy is in 1958, uh, right, before, Basically right before Vatican II uh, There was a document Rome put out Called, if I can find it here I oh, hear it, I hear it De Musica Sacra et Sacra Liturgia Alright On sacred music and the sacred liturgy And so they actually came up with Five or six different kinds of music here um, one of them was Gregorian chant, one is sacred polyphony, one is modern sacred music. So there's your question. So okay. that would be music that's composed yesterday but still is in the character of the liturgy and that's the primary thing. Does the music and grow that's what out Ke- of the
0: that's what Kevin Allen is doing, you He's, would say? Yeah, I would say so for okay. sure. Okay. Right.
1: It's contemplative, it's aspirational, it starts with the text of the mass. Uh, there are other composers too doing things like that. But then he distinguishes between popular religious singing as different from modern sacred music. And that's a really important thing. He's real high on popular religious singing. He says it grows out of our nature as human beings who love to sing words of praise to God. But it's not necessarily the same thing as the text of the liturgy itself. So what's really good, I think, is to not say, well, devotional music, the Matmar, the, the people who are writing modern songs, that's all bad. On the other hand, it might not just seamlessly blend into the liturgy because by definition, it's it's not uh, liturgical. And so you have to say, okay, well, how do I find out if it belongs in the liturgy or not? And then you have to know what the liturgy is as the voice of, bra- of the bride to the Father and the people joining in that song. So does, is the song us in a devotional way, doing our private prayer to God, or is it the corporate nature of the mystical body addressing God the Father through the action of the Holy Spirit? Then you can say modern or old, is it liturgical? That's the real question, and that's how you decide, decide if it belongs in Mass or not.
0: So, a clarifying question. Yes. If a classical, or a classic example of a praise and worship band, Matt Marr, Hillsong, whatever, if they created an arrangement of music for the Mass, but they used the antiphons, would that be okay? Well, it's a good
1: start, but then you have to ask the question, does the liturgical texts have music that actually clarifies the nature of the text as liturgical text. This is why Gregorian chant is always held up as a primary thing, not because it's Gregorian chant, but because what Gregorian chant does is it grows out of the meaning of the words. It's kind of an exclusive use only in the, the sacred realm. Uh, where as soon as it starts to become pop music, then it seems like we're taking a secular mode from the secular world and sort of putting it in the church. And so that, by definition, might unsettle some people, and liturgical music should never be unsettling. So the challenge is how do you bring in modernity in the sense of the small m, like what's out there today, without undermining people's peace, their understanding of what's going on, the liturgical nature of the thing? And if they can do that, great, but... Just because it's modern doesn't mean it's appropriately liturgical.
0: All right, Mike, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguise.com. Thank you, and God bless.
1: The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.